Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. The state of Florida recently banned a number of math books because it said that those math books represented an effort to indoctrinate students. And I invited a Florida state representative on to talk to me about the ban because I thought that the ban is interesting, not just in and of itself. And what's at stake at that fight is not important not just because it's kids uh, and kids in schools and we need them to all be educated and literate. But I think that that conflict also says a lot about how we fight and the rules of our fights and whether or not we're fighting fairly and the kind of evidence that we use when we're having conflicts with one another. It's inevitable we're gonna have those conflicts. We should have some of those conflicts, frankly. Our conflicts are how we often get to a better place, but I also think we have to have some rules. And I think that examining how we engage with one another on some of these issues might show us how to do it better, frankly. Look, we're never gonna all get along, but we can at least fight fair. Here I am with Florida representative, Anna Escamani. We're talking about the Florida ban on math books, but again, I think there are implications for some of our other disputes with one another. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Representative Anna Escamani. Uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to talk to you about Florida having rejected these textbooks. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind, let's break our conversation up into two parts. Part one is whether or not these are books that advance the cause of math. And part two is whether or not the state overreached in rejecting these textbooks. Uh, let's start with part two first, because you've said that by rejecting these textbooks, the state is itself trying to indoctrinate students. What did you mean by that? We see the state of Florida under the now leadership of Governor Ron DeSantis attempt to dictate conversations on identity, conversations on history. And it's not the first time they've done this. In fact, during the 2022 legislative session, several bills that kind of fall under the banner of culture wars were filed and progressed, including the censorship of conversations on race and history, including trying to um, eliminate any type of conversation to identify the fact that LGBTQ plus people are real um, alongside efforts to uh, expand this type of censorship into the private sector and into higher education. So there's been a constant pattern of Florida politicians and the Department of Education doing this. So this is not happening in an isolated vacuum. It's one of many. And when you see uh, the type of rhetoric that comes out of the governor's uh, announcements around whether it's math textbooks or anti-bullying curriculum or you know, something in between, you see this pattern that it's, it's about specific free speech, that we support free speech as long as it's our free speech. And even recently, when the governor signed House Bill 7 into law, this is the omnibus anti-CRT bill, even though there is no CRT taught in any Florida school, uh, he had several children standing around him holding signs that said, you know, CRT with an X over it. I just want to be clear, when you say CRT, you're referring yes. to critical race theory. I am. Thank you for that that flag. Yes, critical race theory. So there were um, there was a press conference with the governor 
surrounded by children holding signs that had the acronym CRT and an X over it. And these are children, four, five, six years old, many who are kids of color, and they have no idea what, what the sign means or what they're doing. And that is just one of the worst examples of indoctrination. I'm, I'm smiling because not only do a lot of people not know where critical race theory is, they weren't, this was not a part of the public conversation before you saw these attacks on it. Um, I actually studied critical race theory in law school uh, because it's an advanced academic theory. Absolutely. And that's really why I wanted to have this conversation, you know, to the extent we can uh, to kind of break it down into two parts, because there is not just in Florida, but we've seen in different states really attacks, if not a real war on telling stories of people that have not been told before. But there's also math. And I looked at some of the selections uh, that the state put forward. So I'll ask you if these are fair examples. One of them, it's like adding and subtracting polynomials. And then there is a whole section about racism and people testing positive for racial prejudice And then there's a formula that describes it. I'm going to put this up on the screen after so people can see it. Uh, I don't understand how that has anything to do with math. And I say all of this because I believe in implicit bias. I think that there's a lot of data on it. Um, There's a lot of data, for instance, on the fact that young black boys and black girls are viewed as much older than their white counterparts. They are not treated as children. I say this as an adult black woman. Um, People sometimes look at us, uh, and I'm speaking of, you know, folks like me, my skin. Um, People sometimes look at black women, I, I speak from experience, and they assume I'm not as smart as I am. They assume that it's okay to talk to me in a certain way. They, they assume I don't know things. They assume it might be okay to cheat me in a deal. And part of the reason they can't do that is because I know math, like actual math. When I look at these examples in this textbook, I am not convinced that they advance the cause of math. It concerns me in particular because most of the students who are impacted by curriculums that don't teach them the basics are students of color. They are black and brown students. They are students who are subject to the jurisdiction of public school authorities. And I think they're being given short shrift. So I say all of that to say that I am very sympathetic to making sure that people understand what racism is. Um, I think there's a time for those conversations. I'm not sure that the time is in a math book. Uh, so I, I just said a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, you brought up so many important points. So I first just want to add that, you know, my first time learning about critical race theory was also my PhD program. So I echo your point that it really is a higher ed theory that we learn alongside other theories. And when it comes to theories, either you use it and test something or you use something else, you know, theories are meant to be tested and tried. It's not meant to be fact. Um, and so to that point of the textbook, so the four examples that the Department of Education shared on their website, which I think you're referencing, there's a disclaimer there that's important to stress that these were actually not examples that were necessarily produced from the textbooks that they're examining. Uh, they actually said these were examples that came from parents. Um, so it's even hard to know if those are from the, the you know, textbooks that were recently rejected. Now, I will say the New York Times did analysis of 21 of these textbooks 
They did not find anything about race. You know, one of the textbooks, for example, did profile um, different historical figures in math. And there's, there was an emphasis on people of color who are often not mentioned in that history. And then there also was a lot of what's called social emotional learning or SEL. And some of those, um, uh, you know, big anti-CRT voices have also been uh, tying social emotional learning to CRT, which you'll ask any professional, they will tell you they're totally different. The goal of social emotional learning is to help kids navigate stress, especially when it comes to solving math problems and to just be good team players. Um, most of the SEL curriculum is for the teachers, not the students. So it might be in the instructional manual. And it's actually really unsettling to think that social emotional learning is now controversial because after the Parkland shooting in Florida, SEL was emphasized by our school districts, by the state as a means to help kids stay safe and to help teachers detect children who might need a little bit extra attention because they are navigating um, stressful environments either in a classroom or at home. So there's like this complete 180 when it comes to what we consider to be appropriate content within our educational materials. And so much of it is very much garnered in what I would say is misinformation. I think that there are parents who are very well-meaning and wanting to understand um, you know, what is in a math textbook. And this is an opportunity for them to engage in that process. But unfortunately, so much of it has gotten lost in um, what are people who have a lot to gain in creating division and disparities. And I agree. I think one of my biggest concerns is that the kids who actually lose out on this are the kids who are already marginalized, the kids who don't see themselves in our textbooks and deserve to be able to you know, have that representation while also learning the basic components of mathematics. I want to make sure, though, that I go back to a point you made, which is that the example that I used and some of the examples that the state of Florida is putting forward as to what's objectionable in some of these textbooks, your point, if I understand you correctly, is that the examples they're putting forward are not necessarily examples from the books that have been rejected. So that when the Correct. state said, we're rejecting these textbooks, it's not necessarily because of the lesson on racism in the chapter on polynomials. <laughs> well, I mean, just reading the disclaimer straight from their website where these four images are shared, it says, based on the volume of the request, the department has received for examples of problematic elements of recent reviewed instruction materials. The following are examples provided to the department by the public and presented no conflict in sharing them. These examples do not represent an exhaustive list of input received by the department. The department is continuing to give publishers the opportunity to remediate old deficiencies identified during the review. And to that point, some publishers don't even know why their books were rejected. And they do have the opportunity to appeal and many have said they will. But there's, you know, this claim that there's indoctrination in our textbooks at this point really hasn't been well verified by the department. And when you look at these textbooks, I, I think that the that there are going to be legitimate academic standards to your point. And, and this is very common because Florida did change their um, standards. We have now what's called the best standards. And anytime you do a dramatic shift in just the, you know, the academic uh, goals, it can lead to high rejection rates. And there could be math problems in these books that just weren't hard enough, math problems that 
maybe were too hard for the grade level, et cetera. But the claim that CRT is a reason why these were removed at this point really isn't well justified. So to some degree, you know, this I kind of get the vibe that some of this is a little performative, that the governor, the Governor DeSantis' administration uh, is trying to continue to draw a contrast between himself and other potential Republican presidential candidates on the Republican side and is further dividing us versus just addressing legitimate concerns we have about math textbooks. So I'm still waiting for more evidence to that point. It would strike me as incredibly performative because you and I are right now having a conversation about an example that I used that may have nothing to do with the state action. I mean, it's a completely, you know, if Uh, this were a court of law, I'm regularly surprised, not surprised by the way that logic and analysis in the public policy arena takes a completely different track than you do in court. Because if you presented Mm -hmm. evidence in court to prove a point. And then the other side was like, yeah, except this, you know, fact had nothing to do with the case. The judge would say you brought up something that was entirely irrelevant. So these examples that the state is citing may be entirely irrelevant because we still don't know if they are the reasons why the state rejected these books. The state's putting these examples forward to say, here's what parents told us but they're not putting these examples forward to say, here's what's in the books Correct. that we rejected. That's some sleight of hand. Well, and I made the request for the specific reasons for rejection at least two weeks ago, and we have not gotten those specifics at all. And just to give another example of one of the textbooks that was rejected, and again, we're purely speculating of, of why these decisions were made because the department has not even released those specifics to us but you know, one of these textbooks had a, um, a self-assessment tool for students. So you would basically uh, rate your comprehension of math concepts that you would do it yourself as a student. And then students were also asked to self-assess their willingness to try new things and to persevere when something is challenging. And these are those social emotional learning questions I mentioned earlier. And that's what these you know anti-CRT people have an issue with. Like, it's not just conversations on race. They don't even want any type of uh, reflection or team building exercise or identification of emotions. I was actually decently good at math, maybe these days, you know, not so much. But when I was a kid, I was like, I was the kid that would tutor my peers and help them with math problems. Um, I know that for some of my classmates, it was very stressful. You know, math was like the subject they hated the most. And they didn't feel like they could figure out a new way to solve a problem. They were also embarrassed to say they, they didn't know the answer. So I think social emotional learning can be a really great tool in helping kids get over those types of emotional barriers. And I would add that from a workforce perspective, like I think most CEOs, when, when, you're, when they are asked, do you want someone who's really good at algebra or someone who can work as a team and navigate stress? They're probably going to be, you know, leaning towards those social skills, which if we're not ensure that's a part of the curriculum, especially in these complex subjects for some kids, then I think we're also doing a disservice to just the next generation of young people and not giving them the opportunity to really reflect in their own personal emotional well-being as they grow up into adulthood. What is social emotional learning uh, representative? I, I hear that term used so often. Uh, I, I'm out of the loops. I remember when I had math, 
it was just math. It wasn't math with stories. It, it, it was just math. I, I don't understand it. And I don't understand how it, as an academic discipline, fits into a curriculum, you know, that's sort of objective. Like math is not about how you feel. Math is about, or your perspective, right? Or, or your analysis or what you bring to the table. Math is just about as objective as it gets. So help me understand what social alert, uh, what social emotional, what is it? <laughs> social emotional learning. Yeah. Social emotional so, learning. How totally. does that apply in the context of an objective discipline like like math? For sure. I mean, in full disclosure, I don't consider myself to be a you know an SEL social emotional learning expert either. Uh, but what I do know is that it, it's it is an effort to allow for students of, of every age bracket, by the way, students in any field and every age to develop self-awareness, self-control, and interpersonal skills that are vital to, to be successful in a classroom, in your work, your job, or in everyday life. And so, you know, people who have strong social-emotional skills are better able to cope with everyday challenges, and that allows them to not stop if something gets hard. Um, that allows them to better communicate an idea or a way to solve a math problem versus um, give up if they don't get it the first time. Because, you know, even in math, there can be more than one way to solve a math problem, right? Your goal is to get to the same answer, but sometimes there's two paths or more to get there. And if you refuse to explore another path, then that might make it harder to work in a team where there might be two different ways to solve a problem. So the goal of SEL is just to help with those awareness skills and to also to some degree, help you see the value in also learning math. Like I saw one of the other textbooks that was rejected asked a student for their math biography. So it asked you to explain to us, you know, share why, what's your history with math, right? Because again, some kids might have not a good relationship with math. Like again, I had a great one. I have many memories of doing homework with my dad and I have, you know, a good supportive environment to get good at math. Um, but not with AP calculus. I was, I was, I like totally rejected and had a lot of anxiety about that when I was in high school. And so, you know, the point of SCL is to say, if you're having trouble with this subject, try it a different way. And it's okay to try it a different way. And so it still maintains objectivity of solving the math problem, but it also creates a space for um, an identification that for some people, this might be anxiety causing. For some people, it, it might be, um, uh, difficult to work in a team. And it just tries to encourage that type of growth. And it, it helps a teacher be thoughtful to those dynamics as well. So that if a kid is having trouble with a math problem, it might not be because they're not good at math. It might just be that there's something else going on that they don't see um, a path forward or they give up really easily. So you're just trying to build that resiliency with that kid you know, at a young age where um, it'll benefit them long-term. I saw some statistics recently uh, out of Florida that students post-pandemic were testing uh, not as well as they had before and some of the basics, uh, basics be, being math, science, reading. Have we gotten too far away from those basics, Representative? Um, and again, I say this with many, many disclaimers. I'm not raising young people um, right. I'm not an educator, and I know that there are people who are much closer to this issue than I am who can speak to what works. 
But I just sometimes concerned, you know, as a citizen that's uh, in a world that's going to be peopled by young people, a lot of those young people these days, and again, I'm talking about the ones who are most dependent on public education, uh, the ones who don't have the option uh, to go to private schools or perhaps charter schools, who don't have parents with resources, who have parents with multiple jobs, those kids need to know the basics. And they need to have the discipline to learn the basics so they can be competitive with those other folks from all over the world who are coming here, getting an education and taking that educational capital back to wherever it is they came from. Our kids, I don't, I I think are being shortchanged. Yeah. Yeah. Am I overly worried? Do you think? Because I don't really think I am. No, I, I don't think you are. And I, I think the problem is, is, is definitely multifaceted because remember, as we're having this conversation, there's also been a huge exit, I'm sorry, an exodus, I should say, of teachers from the field of teaching. And a lot of this is due to not being paid a wage they can actually live on. Also, a lot of these culture wars are just creating fatigue. You know, as an educator, you have so many boxes to check off. And now to be worried about, you know, if I, you know, have a pride flag in my classroom or if I, um, you know, uh, defend a kid who's being bullied or identify the fact that I have a same-sex partner, like that can now get you terminated in different schools, right? So it's just very overwhelming for educators on top of the responsibilities of keeping kids informed and safe. I, in a state like Florida, where unfortunately we've had these really horrific mass shootings, whether in public spaces or in schools, um, you know, teachers are having to kind of be everything, right, for kids. And that is pushing really good teachers out of the field, which I think in the day will impact the students. And so um, I think we need to get back to basics in a way of like, don't fall for culture wars. Like these are not, you know, so much of this is like manufactured debates that are tapping into legitimate concerns that parents have, but in a way that's more destructive than constructive. And it's demonizing educators versus embracing them and the incredible work that they do and helping them be better at their jobs. I think when we're always teaching towards tests, which is a big issue in Florida, we have hours and hours of tests at a county level and at a state level. When you have that type of structure, it also doesn't allow for there to be space for creativity for teachers to try to help students who might need a little bit of extra support or a different way to teach something. At the end of the day, you have students who are visual learners, students who are more auditory, students who need to practice to get perfect. And I think we're not creating those spaces in our schools because we're so caught up in a lot of these what have become more partisan fights when education really should just be um, equitable for every type of kid, whether they're whatever color, whatever age, whatever political ideology they their family is, um, how much money their family makes. It's supposed to be that even playing field. And I definitely think we've lost our way from just those fundamental educational goals. It's a leveler. Education is a way to level the playing field. Everything that I have in my life I have because of the education that my parents insisted that I get. Absolutely. Like, you know, they were very working class. I know that you, uh, you're the daughter of working class Iranian immigrants. Uh, you know yourself what it is to be able to benefit from the great educational resources in this country. So let me ask you this, Representative. These examples that the state put forward, examples that they say were provided to them by parents, I haven't verified that these examples actually exist 
in any textbook anywhere. Have you or anyone in your office? Are we, or are we just talking about some red herring? Yeah. I mean, we have not been able to, uh, confirm at this time we're trying, but you know, it was, it's like 40 some textbooks and we don't have clear access to every one of them. So we're trying to confirm and I've been reading, you know, local reporting and the New York times did not cite any of these examples. They provided some of those other social emotional learning examples, but, but I will say, you know, one of the other areas that I suspected was causing tension and, you know, this is to be proven or not, is any conversation about race also being canceled in the way that if we are looking at statistics and statistics is all about understanding the world around you. And that can include statistics around disparities, disparities around race, disparities around income, disparities around gender. Uh, It can be a breakdown of uh, the religiosity of a community and the different religious diversity in a community one of my concerns with the direction that the state of Florida is going with some of this rhetoric is that are you trying to eliminate like even the study of these issues? Because again, the whole goal of math is to solve problems. And I would argue that if there's a group of people who are more likely to have access to healthcare than others, we should understand that and we should then find a way to solve that. So I, I do think one of my other concerns around this uh, uh, pattern, if you will, is that we're also rejecting like any fact-based, evidence-based information that students could analyze and provide insight, but because it might intersect with a conversation of race, then now we don't think that's appropriate in a classroom setting, which I would argue it's actually really important. And it's a part of learning history. It's a part of learning who we are and what we can do better as Americans. So that's one of my other concerns that I have. The example that I mentioned if it did come from an actual textbook somewhere, then I would submit that this is a situation where a whole lot of things are true at the same time. Uh, because I don't think that that bit belongs in a math book, like just me. If I had a kid in school, I'd want my kid learning some math because <laughs> that child would be a child of color. And the best way you can make sure that people don't get one over on you, especially the bigots, is to make sure you know some stuff. So I don't love the stuff that I see is in those examples. Um, but that is not to give short shrift to, one, whether or not they really form the basis for the state's decision, which we don't know because the state hasn't identified uh, what, formed the basis for its decision in rejecting the books. But the other thing that's important not to give short shrift to is that we are in the middle of a moment where uh, certain folks are trying to cancel conversations about race and history. Um, You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that I took for granted when I was growing up in schools Like, you know, people didn't care about my feelings. I had to, you know, I was the one in school who was chided by the teacher for reacting in an unladylike fashion when a little boy called me a racial slur. So, you know, times have changed. And I think that we need to stay on top of it. We also need to make sure that our kids are being educated properly. What was it like for you uh, being the daughter of immigrants? You've now ended up in the Florida State House. I mean, you certainly have a perspective on what it is to be a young child who may not be a part of the mainstream culture um, and having to navigate all that. What was it like for for you growing up? 
Yeah, I definitely can relate to your personal experience. Uh, in my case, it was after 9-11, since my family is Iranian, uh, becoming the target of racial slurs and xenophobic insults and just terrorist jokes. Candidly, that was something that I um, actually navigated pretty much into my high school years. And, you know, when you get older, you try to laugh it off and kind of play out, play it off, if you will. Um, but as I've grown into the woman I am today, you know, I, I look back at that and realize that really wasn't appropriate. And I kind of I kind of compartmentalized it at the time. And, you know, I, I think that there is that the, the Generation Z and this next generation of leaders, they are much more intentional and thoughtful. And I, I think that it's important to ensure that we are we are evolving with generations of Americans and meet their needs. And I think building grit is really important. I, I, I have that just by default because my mom passed away when I was a kid. So I had to build grit. You had that experiencing racism and having to navigate it yourself. Right. So we have to be intentional and make sure that our kids have opportunities to build resilience and build grit. Um, and part of social emotional learning is trying to do that too. It's just to say that if you can't solve a problem, don't give up, just try solving the problem again and try a different way. But we didn't have, you know, some degree, I feel like we were already doing that in the classroom, but we didn't have a name for it. And, you know, once something has a name, then it's easier to be targeted and to try to become politicized. Cause I do remember, you know, especially helping my classmates with math problems, um, you know, creating a space where they felt safe to ask me for help. And then also there were moments where I felt pressured as if, because I was one of the smart kids in the class. You feel this pressure where I should know the answer to everything. And even that is like a cocky behavior that is not healthy for a workplace, right? And I had to kind of learn out the hard way because there would be times I remember where I would, you know, kind of nod my head to the teacher, just give off the impression I knew the answer. And then one time she actually called on me and I didn't know the answer. And it was one of those examples of don't fake it, like learn it and be honest and authentic. And again, I think those are skills you learn in the classroom, those soft skills, even if it's not intentional, I think that's one reason why we're in an academic setting. I mean, maybe that's just, maybe that's my perspective on it, but um, I would not be the woman I am today if it wasn't for my public school teachers and for the fact that I could navigate my own trauma in a safe way and build that resiliency despite so many obstacles that were thrown in my direction. Here, here, uh, I was in public school from sixth grade through high school. Uh, Representative, before you go, um, you made another really great point, which is that these culture war conversations are completely distracting from the need to educate our children in a competitive way and make sure that they are ready to inherit the world that we're leaving them. So tell me about what you plan to do in the Florida State House to oh make my gosh. life better for the kids in your jurisdiction. Because this yeah. debate over what may or may not be in these textbooks and banning stuff, this is not advancing the ball. You know, this, no. all of this is not advancing the ball. Kids aren't learning. Our kids are being undereducated. They're graduating, unable to compete. So you are in a position where you hold the reins of some power and you've got some ability to help change that. What's your yeah. plan? Well, first of all, thank you again for the opportunity to be here. So one of the points I always bring up on the House floor, especially around the health and well-being of children, is what are we doing to actually address like the economic insecurities that 
impact a student's ability to do good in school. That's why part of my leadership is always focused on housing security, on ensuring that kids have food in their belly, and that we're just kind of meeting those basic needs so that they can pay attention in a classroom. In my district, I have way too many families who live in hotels and motels because they can't afford an apartment. And if your Wi-Fi goes out when you're in a hotel or you don't have secure Wi-Fi at home, there's no way you can actually even perform well compared to your peers. So part of my vision and my goal is to just address some of those other disparities. I mean, you don't get as much attention, but they do impact a kid's ability to do good in school. When it comes to the curriculum and the content, we have been leading the charge in reducing the amount of testing to move towards more progress monitoring versus these pen to paper tests every you know year that just kind of not only take away classroom time, but not every kid can be graded on a test. Not every kid's a good test taker. So you have to find new ways to measure students because you want to have metrics and accountability, but in a way that doesn't actually provide you with uh, uh, a, a, an evaluation tool that is going to be, to your point earlier, biased or not reflective of the kid's entire educational experience. And then we got to make sure that we're recruiting and retaining teachers. That is not happening right now. Like I said, Florida is experiencing a huge exodus of educators. We have, um, in some cases, uh, you know, more substitutes, <laughs> uh, you know, in a building, uh, in a department than even teachers because of just the huge gaps. And a kid is not going to have a good experience if they have a new teacher every day in the classroom. So we also have to make sure we support our veterans teachers while also helping to re- recruit and retain new teachers. Florida's education colleges have shrunk because a lot, a lot of students who are deciding what career path to take are, are feeling that education is not a good one for them. And so part of my goal too is to incentivize going into education. And part of that is a good paying job and the ability to actually have creativity versus fall into all these different controversies and all these uh, different mandates. Is there room in Florida for some bipartisan consensus on uh, creating more educational opportunities, perhaps in the trades, uh, more more funding for trade schools, more funding for kids to go. I call them kids uh, for young people to go to <laughs> trade schools. Um, yeah. Is there room for Republicans and Democrats to work together on an issue like that? Because I've heard folks on both sides of the aisle uh, in your part yeah. of the country say that that's a priority. It's it's funny you say that because. Before the whole CRT debate, that was actually a, a pretty popular and to your to your analysis bipartisan goal. And in Florida, we have expanded access to apprenticeships. I visit trade schools all the time in my district, but I understand what are the opportunities for students. We have a, a phenomenal school in my district that does dental hygienist and pharmacy techs and surgeon techs and different needed fields in medicine which many of these students will continue to pursue the next degree in that field once they get their feet wet. So I, I think there is 100%. The, the challenge is that you know so much of the attention and so much of the politicking has gone towards these culture wars. And what I, what I mean by that is if you're a Republican running for whatever and you're trying to compete within a primary, your primary voters are asking you about these questions. And so there's almost like this pressure within the conservative spaces and sometimes the liberal spaces too, to like be as extreme as possible because your primary voters expect you to do that. And when you do that type of, um, you run that type of campaign, then you're more driven to 
be as, you know, national in your rhetoric as possible, even though I would argue that on the ground, the issues that I face with my schools is the need for food pantries because kids don't have food at home, um, the need for uh, more transportation options. You know, we had a situation with kids who live in a hotel and they had to walk past one of our major highways in order to get to their school. So we had to try to get money for a bus. So the bus would pick them up versus put them in harm's way. Like those are the issues that we get. We get concerns from teachers who experience sexual harassment and don't have a path to deal with it. So there's some really serious issues that are not political at all that I deal with on the daily. But those that get the most attention, you know, are these are these very partisan ones. So I like to think there's a way to get back to that bipartisan nature. And I'm going to do everything I can to get us there because I think a good democracy needs to be collaborative. And right now we're heading in a direction that is not very stable. Well, thank you for staying focused on the basics, because as you point out, while everybody is tweeting about these math books and this uh, there are kids, especially during the pandemic, who were falling behind because, as you pointed out, they had no Wi-Fi, they had no laptops, they had no materials. And those aren't the sexy things to tweet about. Those aren't the things that people want to post about. But thank you for doing the work to make sure that those young people are getting what they need, um, even if it's not what folks uh, spend a lot of energy on. So thank you for doing that work. Uh, Representative Eskamani, you've been a wonderful guest. I hope you will come back. Um, I hope you get some answers about why these books were banned. I hope we all do. Uh, cause Absolutely. I think that, uh, the, the public conversation certainly in a democracy requires that. And I really hope that you will continue the effort to make sure that our young people are graduating educated able to read and write and count and do science and be competitive with the rest of the world. Uh, Representative Anna Escamani, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. 